This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. And what a great way to start 2022. I am joined by Mike Eden and Matthias Desmet. Thank you, gents, for joining me in the trenches. Happy New Year. Happy is it a happy new year it's difficult um but i'm i'm in a better place than i was um i'm in florida by the way um i call it running towards the sound of the guns because we are going to prevail you know eventually humans and uh, hopefully before we reach the last stand in alamo well we're going to win this time but anyway you get the idea i i didn't i decided not to stay in the uk because i was worried that they might get to stupid things like border closures and stupidity about vaccine passports sooner than I wanted. Um, so anyway, I thought I'd be somewhere where I felt I could keep battling for as long as is needed. That's why. That's why I'm here. I, I guess the same holds for me. I um, I don't believe uh, um, the process we are in will stop immediately, but I will continue to speak out. And I have the impression that uh, there are more people now that start to speak out. Uh, but at the same time, probably um, the the mainstream narrative or the system might become more uh, repressive, might become more aggressive in a certain sense, because um, I don't know any or all or, or systems and ideologies tend to use their power when they start to feel threatened, and um, and I guess that is what will happen uh, in this situation as well. So, um, well, I'm hopeful in the sense that. You see that um, people become more aware of uh, that uh, there is something, well, something a bit wrong with the narrative, or even a lot wrong with the narrative, and uh, and uh, well, uh, I guess uh, uh, maybe uh, um, in a few years, I believe, uh, we might get rid of the, the the psychological problem we are dealing with now. I was just walking with my wife before we came on this um, program. And because she was quite angry with me, I've been a bit stressed in the last 24 hours because I, I foolishly managed to get four interviews in a row. So I, I, it means I have not had a day to kind of settle my mind or spend any time with her. And unfortunately, I, I tend to be an anxious person, which is just a, a, an awful characteristic. Uh, one of the pros of anxiety, if you're an inquisitive person, and that's probably why it's helped me, is it makes you think over and over and over again. So. It means I improve at things, but it makes me impossible to be with. Uh, and it's no fun in my head either. So anyway, so she was quite angry and said, you must not do this back to back stuff because it's no good for you and it's no good for me. Anyway, so we were we were walking and I said, you are right. Although I want to rush at this and speak out, as Matthias says, um, I'll just blow up if I try and do multiple interviews. I'm not going to survive. So um, I want to try and make them more effective. and. Um, so you know, maybe we could turn we could turn to that. Um, no one wants to hear me telling you about the government's lies. I hope if you if you're even half conscious, you know that at least something that's important about your health is is completely wrong. And they shouldn't. Be, and if they're lying about that, why would you believe anything else they're telling you? Um, and so you know, for me, the, the recent realization that Matthias uh, I think has brought into the world that. When we've thought people acting almost as if they're hypnotized and we realized you know they really are mm. 
and I've, I've come across, well, my sister Jane is a PhD biologist and I haven't seen her for a long time because she lives in Australia. She's been there for over about 40 years. I can't persuade her at all. Uh, she thinks I've been captured by aliens is her expression. Um, whereas, whereas eight of my family members um, in the UK and Europe, they all believe me because I've spoken to or seen them regularly through 2020. Um, and then the guy that was the head of the UK Vaccine Task Force, um, a guy called Dr. Clive Dix, I met him. He was a senior guy at Glaxo when Glaxo bought Welcome. And I remember amusingly, he, he took too long to come to me. So by the time he got to me for what was called the fireside chat, I'd already taken a job at Pfizer. And so he spent, I let him spend 15 minutes selling the company to me and then I told him that I already had a job and he wasn't pleased. But we passed on, parted on good enough terms. So I remember thinking he must be a clever bloke because he's three levels higher than me. But uh, last year I, I had an interaction with someone who knows him well and it's absolutely clear to me he's no idea what's going on. I, I don't mm. think he's faking it. I think he, so he's one no, of no, no. Matthias. He's one of Matthias's mass. Uh, what else? Um, and and, and you know, I'd love them to come to me if I. So I have not said anything bad about Clive Dix. You know, then Kate Bingham. She was once known as the almost the queen bee of London venture finance. Very clever woman. Very accomplished. Um, I pitched to her fund, which she ran, uh, maybe eight years ago, and she was not convinced. Didn't invest. And I, and I, of course, we did actually eventually make a lot of money. So tough luck, Kate. But again, very clever woman. She was in charge of the vaccine task force. I, I don't believe for a moment that she has any idea that she's helped purchase toxins. I don't think she does. Um, and so it seems to me intelligence and knowledge are no defense at all against this process, Matthias. It's, mm -hmm. In fact, it's worse. I think you almost kid yourself. You, know, you understand. And so immediately you line up with the intelligentsia and you kind of make excuses for things that don't fit. Um, I probably did that for my entire life until a year and a half ago. I, was, I would I have described myself as a a normie. I spent forty one years listening to BBC Radio Four. Forty one <laughs> years. Forty one years, and and uh, I don't listen to it anymore. It's all nonsense. Anyway, you know, I'm tired of beating on the drum of you know it's all not true. What part of of uh, you're being fooled? You're not getting. And I. There's got to be a more subtle way of mm. doing this. Yes, actually, what I was going to say when I was walking is I said to my wife, uh, do you know, this could go on for years. This, I think the, pre the whoever's running this or whatever's running this has probably got sufficient patience to run us into the ground if, if we let them. So maybe this becomes a part-time job for the next eight years. Matthias, uh, I thought a great way to get your engine started um, is a quote that I read by Carl Jung. Um, and forgive me if I, if I get it slightly wrong, but he said something along the lines of the greatest threat to mankind is not disease or natural disaster, but our inability to deal with our own psyche. Do you agree mm -hmm. with that? Oh, yes, of course. The greatest and the most dangerous enemy is in, um, is in, um, is, uh, in ourselves and then i agree yes like that in the in the beginning in the very beginning of the crisis give me a minute in, in the in the beginning of the crisis in the first week of the crisis i wrote i wrote this opinion paper uh which was titled the fear of the virus is more dangerous than the virus itself and mm -hmm. exactly that's what we see uh, and i i can only confirm what uh, michael was telling that uh, i see 
constantly very intelligent people, highly intelligent people, who in, in, a, in, a, in a miraculous way are not able anymore uh, to see that the counting of the number of contaminations, hospitalizations, the number of casualties claimed by the virus uh, is actually uh, leads to a, to a dramatic overestimation of the dangerousness of the virus. That's only one example, but I see it constantly around me. People who have a, a PhD in statistics, for instance, and who in an in, 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 in almost incomprehensible way uh, cannot see the major mistakes uh, that are constantly made at the level of the figures and the stats and the mathematical models in this crisis. So, uh, the, and, and indeed, it has a lot to do, I think, if you analyze this, maybe some people, uh, some people willingly manipulate uh, the figures, but most experts in this crisis just are in the grip of a psychological process that makes them blind and unable to see what is uh, uh, evident. And uh, that has everything to do with the, the way in which they, they handle their own anxiety and their own fear. And if we, if we, we could say if, if, you, if you handle your fear and your anxiety in the wrong way, then you end up in a very dangerous state as a society. And in that respect, I definitely agree with uh, Carl Gustav Jung, who uh, said that uh, this is more dangerous than a disease. Uh, uh, yes. Matthias, I know that I, I think you are not a fan of that term psychosis in the in the phrase that Robert Malone used on Joe Rogan's show when he said mass formation psychosis. Uh, what is the reason uh, for for not liking the term? Ah, yes, I, I I talked about this with Robert. We we had a podcast which started with a discussion of the term, and indeed I wouldn't use it. And I have problems with the term psychosis, or I don't use the term psychosis because. To, my, to me, it seems that it is both from an ethical, uh, a pragmatic and an intellectual perspective problematic. So the ethical thing is this. Uh, it's not a good idea to diagnose uh, 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 people, I think, in such a situation, because a large segment of the population is indeed in a state, I think, that can be compared to hypnosis. But the other people might be in a in a problematic or some other people might be in a problematic state as well i don't really i don't think that we should stigmatize one group by mm. using a diagnostic term that's the first thing from an ethical perspective i wouldn't do it and then from a from a pragmatic perspective i also think if you want to if to want to if you want to help people uh, to 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 see uh, that in a certain way they have been blind or they have been uh, participating in a in a in a problematic um, uh, dynamic uh, I think you will only uh, make them withdraw more if you use a stigmatizing term. So mm -hmm. I believe that from a pragmatic point of view, it's much better to use a mild term, such as just use the term mass formation, because that's a good term. Mass formation just refers to the fact that there is such a thing like the formation of a crowd or a mass in society, a very specific group dynamic. So I think that's sufficient if, you, if, if, we, if, we, if we indicate a problem like that. And then... From an intellectual point of view, I, I do think it's always problematic to transfer terms that are used for individual diagnosis to the, to the, the level of, a, of, a, of, a, of group dynamics in society. So I will not use it, the term uh, uh, psychosis. And, uh, and meanwhile, I believe that uh, Robert really agrees with me. And I think he, he, he used it quite intuitively and that it is often, it is mm. often 
the, the, the term mass psychosis is, psychosis is often used. So it's not strange that Robert used it. But in my opinion, it's, it's better just to, to stick to the term right. mass phenomenon. Uh, Mike, have you seen this formation happening um, in the intellectual circles? <laughs> I live in hotels. And so the, the lady was just cleaning the room very noisily. So I'm sorry about that. Anyway, I'm on my own. Uh, yes, um, I don't know that I saw. I don't know that I saw a mass forming. I, I don't think I saw that. But I became aware that a group of people were viewing some of the same situation and arriving at completely different conclusions. Uh, you know, as I, I think I famously arrived you know, by writing articles and, and doing interviews, uh, complaining about the inappropriate use of um, PCR mass testing. I, I knew I knew just enough about it to know that the way it was being described couldn't possibly be as accurate as it was being claimed. Uh, just, I'll just say, I don't want to go into that anymore. It's very boring. Mm. But it's a wonderful amplification technique. So it goes, it will take multiple cycles of amplification and th roughly every every cycle it will double whatever was in there because it, it whatever it will anneal and make a copy of whatever's in there um so it'll be however many cycles it'll be two to the power of however many cycles so when we talk about 25 cycles or 40 cycles what we mean is two to the power 25. scribble that down folks and have a work that out manually and then work out what two to the 40 is and it's about, a, I think it is exactly a trillion, one trillion. That's a, a billion billion in old money. And so you only need, and the lower limit of detection, as its inventor, Dr. Carrie Mollis said, is one molecule. So if you've got a probe and a primer, and they should sit together, and, and if, if they successfully detect, you know, you're fishing for something in the sample, if, they, if, they, if it successfully binds, and then you're successfully multiply for 40 cycles, you can make a trillion molecules. Now, that's a lot. Um, and so the amount of contamination required to be able to get a signal is like one molecule during the process. It probably doesn't work like that. But you can see you only have to have one molecule that sticks to the primers mm. that's available to the reaction sometime during the 40 cycles, and you'll get a signal. Well, come on. Now, if you've got loads of tubes, in, even in a flow hood and a careful worker, what chance is there that you have really excluded even that level of contamination? The answer is no chance. So I knew enough to know that what they were claiming for it, uh, basically they were using inexperienced graduates who'd never worked in a lab, who had to be trained how to use a pipette. And then they were shoving two of them at a time in a flow hood where the flow will be disturbed if you have more than one person in it. And then, yeah, so I knew that the numbers were nonsense, or at least they, they couldn't be relied upon. Um, and yet that's the that's one of the two great deceptions, I think, you know, as Matthias was saying, the, the statistics are not right. So one was to confuse a positive test with a case, whereas historically we would start with symptoms and then try and work out what was wrong with you. Mm. Whereas now we start often with people with no symptoms and, and declare that they are a case, and worse, a confirmed case. That sounds really grand, doesn't it? But it's just a positive test result. Um, and then and I think the other the other big lie and I do see this around me all the time here in Florida in sunny weather uh, is people walking around with masks on quite often young young people uh, with big beaks on them you know those N95 masks it's and not I, I just smile. Florida it's not just no, Florida it's, it's, it's everywhere 
wave goodbye, you know, wave hello. <laughs> uh, sometimes, you know, if I'm stationary in a queue or in a lobby or whatever, I, I, I ask them, you know, may I ask, uh, uh, good day to you, you know, may I ask, why are you wearing a mask? And they, they've no idea. It's just no, become no, I think I think what I was alluding to when I when I said uh, in your intellectual circles, and maybe Matthias, you could, you know, uh, answer this. But how is it that supposedly smart or intelligent people fall for the same formation that you speak of? Well, um, first, like for about thirty percent of the population, probably about thirty percent. The, the corona measures um, such as mask wearing and vaccination and, and so on really have the psychological function of a ritual. And a ritual, ritualistic behavior, is behavior that has no pragmatic meaning at all. But, and that demands a sacrifice of an individual. Mm. By participating in a ritual, an individual shows that its own individual interests are less important than the interests of the collective. And that's why rituals always are a kind of behavior that demands a sacrifice of the subject, such as this sacrificing children, for instance. So, and if you look at the, the phenomenon in itself, then it's clear that uh, intelligence doesn't play a role. To the contrary, to the contrary, uh, the more, well, you have intelligence and you have education. And at least the more highly someone is educated, the, 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 the higher the level of education, usually the more vulnerable people are for mass formation. And that's because our education and our training at school maybe learns us more to think as everybody wow. else than to think, than to think mm -hmm. for ourselves. So that's one thing that has been described by such, such scholars as Gustave Le Bon uh, and Canetti, uh, Freud, uh, McDougall, from the beginning of, of, uh, of the study of mass formation. And you, there's another way to look at it. If you look, I've been describing uh, since more than a year now how the process of mass formation emerges in a society. And what you see is this. What happens in a mass formation is actually that all the psychological energy, all the anxiety, all the energy is attached to a very small set of mental representations. So, and that makes that the field of attention becomes very narrow. It, it is as if people only see the, the virus and the, the possible dangers associated to the virus, for instance, and that they are completely blind for all the collateral damage of the corona measures, for instance. So that mm. is this famous, this famous narrowing of the field of attention. So that means that for a person who is into this, in this process of mass formation, the only reality that exists is this small part of reality that is indicated by the narrative yes by the, by the mainstream narrative which means that at that moment let's compare it to a computer at that moment the computer of the person just has no other data available data available than what is mm -hmm. indicated by the narrative it is the only data the only information that is charged with psychological energy this means that no matter how powerful your computer is, it cannot work with data that are not available in the system. And that's the problem. That's the problem that you're dealing with people for whom the only data that are available in their mental system is this small part of data that is 
uh, indicated by the narrative and which and that is in line with the narrative because the other information is just cancelled out which means that intelligence has no impact at all on this process sure yeah oh that's 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 absolutely fascinating because i just before you spoke and i didn't answer your question germ about have i seen you know intellectuals mass for forming as it were really exactly as matthias described it except i would have got i would have described it wrong because i didn't i don't didn't understand what was happening but yes lots of people lots of people people i i'm still very friendly with so i engage in conversation mm. um i literally can't yeah i mean you've described it perfectly matthias it's i, I i've often tried really kindly to say you know, we've discussed this you've told me this can we just do one thing you know let's focus on one particular feature and i think they're unable to do it unable to do it so i, I was trying to direct a friend to uh, discuss with me asymptomatic transmission and and i <laughs> I tried four or five times um, by writing and we were on the phone and I actually couldn't find out. It was almost like uh, trying to put a pin through a globule of oil and it just kept moving. And I don't think they were, I don't think they knew they were doing it and I didn't know how to steer them and it's just completely unsuccessful. And I said, well, it's nice talking to you and speak again soon. So yes, I have seen it, I, but I hadn't understood. Yeah, I still don't, I still don't understand. Um, it, and you know, it's very important because you know there's this old saying never attribute to whatever it is malice that which can be attributed to incompetence something like that so it's almost the equivalent might be never ascribed to evil that which can be ascribed to this inappropriate narrowing of focus so as Matthias says it the people who are caught in this and can only see the the, the narrative and things in line with it they're not evil they're not evil they are no. they're caught in a process so but 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 the people who have made this happen they're evil i've mm. no doubt in my mind these people knew what they were doing they're very skilled at the things matthias has described and no doubt much more we, we've seen the the process of mass formation be, became increasingly strong throughout the last two or three centuries and this was this simply has to do with the fact that throughout the last two or three centuries the number of socially isolated people is always increasing. And just before the crisis, it, it reached a highly problematic uh, uh, proportions because like the US Surgeon General in America mentioned that there was a loneliness epidemic. Over 50% of the people mentioned that they had not one meaningful relationship, that they only connected through the internet. In the UK, Theresa May appointed a loneliness minister. And <laughs> if you, 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 really, you, you really have to look at it like a chemical process. If there are a lot of socially isolated, atomized people, Hannah, Hannah mm. Arendt calls it atomized uh, individuals, all these isolated elementary particles suddenly reconnect in the process of mass formation. And the more people there are that are socially isolated, the larger the process of mass formation is, and then also the larger, uh, the longer it, the longer it lasts. And, and the, the free-floating anxiety is one aspect of it. It's also something that you should... I, I almost see it in my mind as a chemical process. All this anxiety that is not coupled to a representation suddenly, with the speed of the lightning, connects around the globe with the same mental representations. That has been described by Canetti, by several people who always were, were so surprised to see how fast it happens. And once, once it happens, the process, 
all these people that are connected in the mass formation, they share the same ideas, the same kind of thinking, and mm. also the, they often use the same words. And it's, it's something that is very hard to explain and to understand from a mechanistic uh, 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 view on man and the world, because it happens so fast and so in such a strange way that everybody who has been studying this has remarked that it is almost incomprehensible how fast it goes. And then also, like even at the physical level, if masses join, if a crowd, if a crowd joins, it has been observed that actually it's very hard to explain how these people so suddenly find each other in the middle of a city, for instance. It seems as if they come from everywhere and they all join this group. It's the same that you see in starling swarms. When a starling, you know, the phenomenon of starling swarms, when it starts, suddenly yeah. the starlings come from all directions, they join each other and they start to move as if they are one organism, as if they are sure. the cells of one organism. It's, it's something something that is extremely hard to understand and uh, when you when you only take into account uh, 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 when you only look from a from a mechanistic perspective mm. or uh, that it is a yeah but is there relevance in humanity for let's say religion or spiritual belief of some sort and if there isn't where do they find that meaning so i don't, don't want to get too confessional hmm. um but i was i was brought up um you know in southeast england in the beginning in the 1960s I, I call it the dying embers of sort of uh, organized you know mostly Protestant religion I guess Christian religion there were signs were all around me I lived in a classical village that had grown up I guess from the medieval era until eventually it ended up on the edge of a dual carriageway <laughs> um, mm. it had one very old church several grand houses around a green on which um, cricket was played in the summer uh, three pubs one for the middle classes one for the working classes and then one on the edge lots of small shops um, and so as a young as a young boy I, I used to enjoy being part of the church choir most people were either a boy scout or a cup scout um, or they sang on the choir uh, or they did something on the edge of the cricket pitch almost everyone was part of a community and my my little bit of the community up to about the age of 10 or 11 was like we would go choir practice twice a week and then we would do a wedding on a Saturday usually and then we'd do two services on a Sunday and I lived about half a mile away so I was just oh, I'm just popping out to do the choir it was great I loved it and I fell in love with the canon of uh, of that sort of English church music and the hymns and the psalms and I never paid any much any attention to it it was just there as part of the environment and I think in a way I without being very religious I would bow my head I'd listen to what the preacher was the, the, the vicar was saying anyway long and short of it is I think it provided some uh, stability which I wasn't thinking of and I think we at our peril unfortunately just allowed these rituals that were so useful just to fade away and they've gone and I now live well until we left England we lived in a different village no one attended the, the church except for people who were like older than 70. Um, anyway so I when and I, I thought about this formally last year I thought I wonder whether I have substituted for religion the sort of organizing process of um, uh, the scientific method I you know mm. I would think about my world as the extent to which things could be, be thought about objectively I, I wondered have I substituted all my life the scientific method as somehow superior and then and then what happened during 2020 was it was crushed underfoot 
you know, what I was dealing, what I was doing, and offering to people was rejected, completely rejected, and I would be attacked. And I remember one day saying to my wife that uh, I've got nothing, you know, because the, the method I think I've accidentally used all my life, the scientific method, is no longer working, and I've got nothing. And I, I found quite, I was quite alone for a few months, and then I don't want to get too grand about it. I suppose it's a lowercase f. I kind of found faith again. I, I just, I was kept bumping into things that reminded me of something 50 years ago. You can hear I'm getting a bit emotional. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think what it's done for me uh, is provided me with the strength to carry on. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm navigating to. So I don't know, I think, Jeremy, if you ask the question again, but I can tell you, if I didn't have faith in humanity, I would have quit. But it's not organised to a particular religious discipline. I'm not, I'm not in anything. I just think, yeah, maybe it's also if there's something as bad as evil, then there's something as good as holy. You know, so I'm going to point myself at that. Mm. That's what I'm doing. But I, I don't, I don't go to church now. And uh, anyway, I'll quit. Yeah, it's nice. Well, you know, um, I could answer or try to answer your question from many different perspectives. But maybe I, I will start with also something on the personal level. Um, when I was about 16 years old, I started to become interested in philosophy and I started to read a lot of philosophers such as uh, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Spinoza, uh, and so on. And um, for a few years I was convinced that the universe and was actually nothing more than a mechanistic machine. And to me, it seems seemed incomprehensible that someone could suppose that there would be something like a God in the universe, in that universe. And I mean it. For me, believing in something like God was close to being mad because I couldn't see what else the human being and would be than a biochemical machine. I didn't like the idea. I didn't like the idea, but my way of thinking or my 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 my, my brains told me that there would, couldn't be an, uh, another option. That 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 the universe and and the entire world and and the human being included was all part of one large mechanistically functioning system of uh, elementary particles and uh, something that could perfectly be described like uh, Laplace, the famous French mathematician said, something that could be completely understood uh, in a rational way and could be described uh, in mechanistic terms. And it took me, from, I, I, I continued to study the sciences and to read uh, some, some popular uh, books on quantum physics and then, and I slowly started to understand that the world that science actually doesn't tell us that the world is a mechanistic system to the contrary that the great scientists all concluded that materialism actually doesn't hold that uh, that there is no such thing as elementary uh, material particles who exist independently of the human mind that was the first crack in my mechanistic worldview and then later on 
much later, I was about 35 years old, I think, when I started to, to uh, make myself familiar with uh, complex dynamical systems theory. And then, then I really started to understand that the world and what we call the facts that they actually that they are, that is not, that they are not only not mechanistic but that we also that they also are not rational they do not behave in a rational way the human mind the human mind is fundamentally not capable to understand the behavior of the phenomena of nature and that was the moment for me that, that, that was really a moment in which I felt liberated from the idea that I could understand everything in a logical mm -hmm. and rational way. And I suddenly saw it there before my eyes, the people such as Edward Lawrence really showed in a mathematical way, which seems like a paradox, and it is a paradox, but they showed in a mathematical way that complex dynamical systems behave like uh, in an irrational way, uh, in the way in, 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 in they, they have the structure of an, of an irrational number. and. Mm -hmm. People like uh, Niels Bohr said that uh, the only way to say something about uh, atoms, about elementary particles, is through poetry. He said because he was sure. he, he, he was well aware wow. he, he was well aware that there is no that 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 the world and the things cannot be grasped by our rational mind, and that for me was slowly from then on. That's profound. I start. I started when I when I looked at nature, when I looked at other human beings, I suddenly knew that I should not start from the idea that I would ever be able to reduce them to the categories of my own thinking. And mm. that was something. there were other things as well. There were other things as well. But it slowly, I believe, moved me in the direction of a more mystic, mystical view on man and the world. And that and that created a space and where I could experience what I believe was the original, the seminal religious experience, the contact, the contact with something that is bigger than you, the being aware that there is a knowledge outside of you that is much greater than your own knowledge and mm. that true knowledge is not inside yourself, but is outside yourself. And uh, for me, for me, that is the essence of uh, what all really seminal scientists have come to tell us they all arrived at the same conclusion they did not arrive at a superior rational knowledge they concluded that our rational knowledge is extremely limited and that if we really want to get in touch with the world and if we really want to know the world we should move to a different way of knowing which is much more uh, which has much more to do with a capacity to to feel empathy with the things we see and we study and to resonate with the phenomena outside of ourselves. And that's where we get in touch with the spirit, I think, that mm. is eternal and it is much, much bigger than we are. You know, I believe that totalitarianism is identical, is identical, identical to the belief in the illusion that there is a theory that is complete, that is total. That's exactly the, the ultimate mm. meaning of the word totalitarianism. It means that you believe that your own theory, be it a race theory such as Hitler's, or be it a, a, a materialist, a historical materialism, uh, as, as what uh, Stalin believed in, but it's the belief that you have a theory which 
is total and you have a fanatic belief that imposing this theory to society will lead to a new uh, uh, society in which the human being is liberated from all its limitations. That's exactly what we see in the contemporary transhumanism and the, contem the contemporary technocratic idea. It's the idea that starting from a rational understanding of the human being, uh, we can overcome its, uh, its intrinsic limitations uh, and, and, and we can create like a, a future paradise. But Hannah Arendt said that the only problem with the paradise of the totalitarians is that it looks like hell and, and uh, <laughs> in the end. And that's exactly what someone or the human, a human being that believes that his own rational understanding of the world is the basis of everything and that he can try to control and manipulate the world, st world starting from his rational understanding always mm. tends to create to, to destroy all humanity and to end up uh, in a catastrophic uh, dystopian uh, society. Um, Mike, in your scientific community, uh, which I know you are um, a member of, can you see a parallel between the 1600s witch hunting? <laughs> oh, yes, uh, yes, in the sense that um, I, I mean, I've not read it, read about it in detail. I probably read, you know, a page or two in my entire life. So I'll, I'll I have an impression of it that for some reason, some people thought that some young women were channeling you know, bad spirits and that some people thought, well, if we can stop this happening, we'll you know, save ourselves. And so there were all these trials and, and you know, people, I don't know how many it was, but you know, quite a number of people over a few years were, were killed in this horrific way. Um, and then gradually people stopped believing that and, and it became and it fell into history. Um, so, uh, yeah. Uh, it is funny, you mentioned witch burning. Um, uh, a friend of mine, I won't mention him, but good on him, uh, another scientist formerly in industry, had been asked by one of these uh, fact checkers about me. And he'd refused to comment about me. And he said, you know what, your inquiry sounds to me like witch burning. <laughs> that was the only thing he said, if you want to quote me, that's what you can quote me saying, nothing else. So he he... He was he was not necessarily agreeing with me, but he was agreeing with you, Jim, that, that uh, it was not a proper balanced inquiry about what was going on here, and he wasn't mm. going to commit himself one way or another. But he he's clearly spotted that that process going on, uh, and yeah, the the more you try and, and the more you try and help people, the more likely you are to get chucked onto the fire, unfortunately. But um, you know the what I've started thinking about. Is just to ask people when when I've described you know some things that I think are wrong you know that and it's not your wrong I'm saying what we have been told is wrong and I'm trying to sort of stand by the person and point as it were you know, what are you seeing um, and I think sometimes I do get through and other times I don't so the yeah. question I've started asking is have you believed anything I've said uh, if I have what's stopping you from acting. You know, is it you don't know what to do or, or you're fearful about consequences of an action? If you disagree with me, then let me know that because maybe I'm completely mistaken or whatever. Um, but one thing occurred to me very recently, um, and this was very helpful. I remember having some professional coaching when I was probably in my early 30s. I mentioned sort of anxiety and somebody had commented that I seemed to know what to do, but I wasn't doing it. And of course, the reason was quite often we don't do things because we're frightened, you know, you, 
it's quite frightening sometimes to move to action is 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 fearful and it's often very easy just to not do anything mm. so the question i've asked i've got for people is if you've believed anything i've said and you haven't acted um is it perhaps because you're frightened and so the, the question that really opened life up for me was mike what would you do if you weren't afraid it's just such a disarming question and of course i immediately said well i'll do a b and c and he said right. well do it uh, and i didn't do it the first day but um I, I would return. I return to that very often. That question: What's holding me back? And it's usually because I'm anxious, fearful. And I, I would say to the people that know something's wrong, um, I, I'm, I'm asking you. I'm imploring you. Uh, I think you have an obligation to at least ask questions. You know, to raise some doubts. Um, that's all. That's all I'm going to ask you to do. And if you're frightened, please do it anyway. You know, they're not going to execute you for asking a question. Mm. Uh, yes, right. Moment, yeah, not at the moment. <laughs> uh, but you've just you've just made me consider a question, Matthias. Maybe you can answer this for me. So, last time, Matthias, you were on my podcast. I was taking antidepressants because of anxiety issues. Now I'm been off for many many months, and I'm in a much better headspace. And you know, thank goodness for that. Right? Um, yeah. Mike mentions that he suffers from anxiety. So now, in this conversation, there are three of us two of us of whom suffer with anxiety issues how is it then that we don't fall prey to that uh, mass formation oh and and I, I i immediately want to add that i have my fair share of uh, problems with anxiety as well i think that anxiety mm -hmm. anxiety is is one of the of the of the of the core aspects of human experience of, of the human condition so everybody is anxious but we have a choice in how we deal with it, mm. and uh, and uh, we can we can we can try to deal with it by hiding us in the group and by conforming uh, to 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 to, uh, to certain ideals that circulate in the groups we belong to, or we can uh, try to handle it by speaking out, because speaking out, if you speak out, that also gives you a certain strength and backbone. And that also is a way to deal with anxiety. I often feel that from time to time here throughout the Corona crisis, I became anxious as well. And then I, I always noticed that at the moment in which I, I started, I decided to speak out in an as sincere and as honest way without trying to, to go against someone else uh, or without trying or without uh, uh, um, uh, trying to impose my own ideas and opinions to someone else i always felt that this the action of speaking out in one way or another um made the anxiety disappear or at least uh, made it lessen but to, throughout this crisis I, do, I don't have been very anxious i must say i i was i've never been anxious for the virus i've been anxious a little bit for the consequences of the of the the the, the societal the, the dynamics in the society i've been a little bit anxious about that but always i i decided to 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 to, to, to just uh, um, try to contribute to, to, to the solution of the problem. And I think as soon as, as, soon as you, you, you really uh, do that, you feel that at least the crisis makes sense and, and, uh, and uh, is meaningful in a certain way. Uh, and in that way, the, the anxiety uh, um, uh, disappears. Uh, uh, so I, or at least it, 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 it decreases. And um, Yes, so that's one important thing. I think uh, it's not mm -hmm. indeed 
every yeah. human being knows anxiety. Human being that does not know, that is not confronted with anxiety, uh, that would be something really strange, I, I believe. <laughs> um, yes. Um, I think, Matthias, you've made a really, a really good point about how moving to action can is, to an extent, cathartic. Uh, it's, it doesn't mm -hmm. fix things, and yes, it can certainly get you into a whole heap of trouble. Um, one of the things that characterizes many of the people speaking out, not all of them, and I would say particular uh, kudos to the people who, who were still in official roles, because on, honestly, the system punishes in many times uh, people who are in official roles and go against the narrative. But because I was semi-retired and drifting along as a sort of uh, uh, occasional consultant to exciting young companies, I could do what I like. Um, now, what I was going to say, yes, I agree with you that uh, speaking out is somewhat cathartic. And so, again, that's uh, on my, 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 my question to anyone who's listened to anything I've said and thinks, oh, I, I understood that bit. If you, if you don't speak up about it, why don't you? And if it's because you're frightened, please do it anyway, because two people here have just told you when you do that, you actually feel a lot better. So, but yeah, can I, 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 I feel, yeah, I just wanted to say that it won't matter how many interviews I do, uh, it won't mm. make any difference. And, uh, I've said this on a few interviews, I'll say it again. I think the concept of the resistance relay is really important. <laughs> so, you know, if, if 10 people, as a result of listening to this podcast, begin doing something, even if it's just, I'm not sure I believe what they're telling me anymore, something as simple as that, it will be worthwhile. But if they just say, oh, I'm glad these guys have got it. No, we haven't got it. You know, mm -hmm. there's nothing we can do to stop this. You can stop it. We can stop this collectively. Nope. I can't do anything. But can I play devil's advocate and, and say to you that, okay, I'm going to speak out but that means now that I'm going to possibly lose my job and that's going to cause me more anxiety. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, Jeremy, that the, the better you understand the true nature of mass formation and totalitarianism, because mass formation and totalitarianism are very much related to each other, but the better you understand the true nature, the more you see that what is really dangerous is being silent. Because in the end, if the dissonant voices stop to speak out, then the totalitarian system always becomes a system that divorces its own children, to use a term of Hannah Arendt, and nobody can uh, will be able to, to see how to escape that danger. Definitely not if it is a worldwide system as we are confronted with now. So the only real means to defy and to resist the destructiveness of a process of mass formation is by speaking out. Because it is a, a type, a kind of group hypnosis. It's a phenomenon that is very sensitive to the voice. Totalitarian leaders understand that very well. They start every day with half an hour of propaganda because they know intuitively or consciously, it depends, that the population is in the grip of the voice of the leader. And that is, it is the voice that uh, keeps the process of mass formation going. And the opposite is also true. If there is another, a different voice, a dissonant voice in public space, then this hypnosis is disturbed. And people might be angry because they are very intolerant to dissonant voices. The masses might be angry, but still, mm hypnosis will become less deep. And uh, that's the only 
the only thing that can prevent the totalitarian system from becoming utterly absurd and radically cruel and uh, uh, committing atrocities. We have seen this in history time and time again in the 1930s in Nazi Germany in the 1935 and mm. um, the Soviet Union that at the moment there is no dissonant voice anymore. At, at the moment the opposition is silenced in public space. That's the moment where the system becomes uh, radically in, uh, uh, cruel in an absurd way. Nobody can predict then what will happen and nobody can predict who will be the next victim of the system because that's what well i will i will not go into into detail i have discussed this in other podcasts but i mean it's much more dangerous to be silent than to speak out that's what right. we all have to realize and we do right. not have to speak out starting from the conviction that we are the only ones who know the absolute truth what everybody has to do is to be as honest as possible and just tell what to the best of his own reasoning is true in this situation not because he's sure that the other one does not know the truth at all but just because here inside he has the mm. feeling that this is what is true that's what we have to try to do as human beings so to your question well mm. yes what happens if i speak out and maybe i i am right. dismissed I, I you are right i think there are certain people who by virtue of their role would be declared as bringing their organization into disrepute almost if they mm. said anything at all but that's not i think that's not true for the bulk of people you, you know if you there was a uh, a doctor that spoke to the uk health Se secretary mr javid a couple of days ago and mm. nearby were four or five you know people in i think nurses garb uh, i don't believe a single one of those would be fired just for saying you know i'm not confident we're going in the right direction so you know could you reassure me I mean, I don't think so. I mean, if they wrote a paper on it and, and said, you know, they're all lying like I've done, they, they almost certainly would be fired. But so what I'm saying is, if you're not speaking out, even though you've heard from McCulloch, Malone, Eden, and 20 others, if you're not speaking out, is it because you don't believe them? Or is it because you, you, you are frightened? Uh, noting that both two of us have said there's a cathartic value in just asking, saying something that's truthful. And maybe mm. at whatever level you can, um, I think, Matthias, you may have used the phrase, or I invented you saying it, was like dropping seeds of doubt. You know, if the lowest level would just be to ask a question, it might be to say, I don't, I don't really feel confident we're doing the right thing anymore. You know, I could understand it in March 2020, uh, things like that. So no, I don't think anyone's going to fire. I don't believe anyone's going to get fired for asking a single uh, question, drop, you know, dropping a little seed of doubt. And all I'm doing is asking people, if you're feeling some fear, I think you'll get some catharsis even for doing that. Because there isn't an answer to the question. If you say, you know, I just don't feel confident what I'm being told, someone can't say, no, 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 it's all perfect. They, they, they also, as Tyson said, they, they, there isn't a rational explanation for the, many of the rituals. So I, I mentioned earlier that I, I often will just ask people, you know, may I ask why you're wearing a mask? And they usually just look at me incomprehensively, uh, uncomprehendingly. And I don't think they know. As I said, the better you understand what's going on, the more you realize that there is no other option than to speak out and mm. and to demonstrate in a according to the principles of nonviolent resistance. That's extremely important because as soon as imperialism set in and then after imperialism, totalitarianism, it, it, it has been remarked by uh, uh, different philosophers and psychologists that by far the most effective way to resist such systems 
like totalitarianism and imperialism is is through non-violent resistance because if you understand the psychological that's something completely different than a than a classical dictatorship in a classical dictatorship non-violent resistance would not be effective at all but mm -hmm. in a totalitarian state it does because because the, the nature of the psychological process is such that every violence used by the minority who resists the system will be used as a justification to move to atro to, to commit atrocities so that's mm -hmm. very typical you can describe this in a very detailed way from a psychological point of view but so speaking out is the first uh, ethical obligation i think because as a human being we have there is something as a human being the as the essence of a human being is very much related to the act of speech as when we stop to speak our truth that's how it is uh, how how it 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 uh, it's it's specified in the talmud when we stop to speak our our truth we slowly lose our soul and i do believe so i believe every time you really succeeded in saying something which you believe really believe is true which you feel inside of yourself which you feel that resonates inside of yourself when you bring this to someone else when you give it to someone else through words and you see that it arrives there that is the moment when we start to really exist as a human being when we have a an experience of existing of existence and that's at the same time exactly the opposite of totalitarianism because totalitarianism destroys mm -hmm. the exi the existence as a human being and that's really you have to take this literally totalitarianism imposes an absolute total discourse to society in such a way that an individual cannot make choices anymore and it is exactly mm -hmm. at the moment an individual makes choices in the first place choices at the level of speech in which it has the in which it has a space where it can formulate formulate the worlds as it prefers them to be formulated that's the moment mm -hmm. where the space where we start to exist as a human being and we have to use this space time and time again even if it is very small we have to use it try to speak and everybody can do this in his own way and we don't have to do this without any uh tactical awareness we can mm -hmm. be careful and we definitely should be honest and polite and sensitive to the reactions of other people. If other right. people mm -hmm. get angry, we should be careful how to deal with them. And we should always keep in mind that maybe to a certain extent we might be wrong ourselves. That's mm -hmm. also possible, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that you just try to speak out those words that are born inside of yourselves and of which you feel that they are true that's the only thing that matters and not and not trying to create division unnecessarily indeed yeah absolutely Mike? one thing yeah one, yes just um, i guess almost final things really um I, I, I remember early on during the crisis i i had this feeling that if i could like get a stake in the ground that was strongly enough anchored i could hold on to that and pull people towards my, my view of things and they would go oh, yes yeah we're making a mistake and we could quite go back but i think you know listening to matthias and also thinking about my my own world i don't think i want to go back you know yes i prefer this hadn't happened but if i could navigate from here to somewhere else the last place it would be was you know december 2019 my life was pretty good but i could i could it could be better and i could see that it could be better for most people so i think 
to go from here to something better. That's a genuine wish. I don't know what it is, but that's a genuine wish. So what I'm saying is I'm not advocating to go back to where we were. So, you know, I, that, in a sense, that's an offering to people who didn't like where they were before. I'm not your enemy and I'm not trying to push you back there. I, I didn't like it either. And let's let's go forward together to a, a place as yet undefined that we feel is better than what we had before. That's that's what I want to do. Uh, but yes, but I want to divert us from this course that I worry we are on, which I think will be right through the gates of hell. A daughter doesn't really convince or change anybody's mind because they'll just say, well, you're getting your daughter from that place and that's fake news or whatever it might be. So there's obviously a different way in which one needs to engage. And I don't know what that is. And so I'm, I'm asking what are some of the tools that you have found to be effective? Yeah. I, I would say I'm in the early foothills of, of answering that question. I, I'm not a proponent of, as it were, being able to persuade people through uh, methods other than, you know, I, I mean, often, as you may have seen, I, I don't, I'm not really a detailed person, which is quite, quite an admission for us of quantitative scientists. <laughs> but I, I, I've, nev I've never liked the detailed numbers. You know, I understood the broad progress of, of often of, say, a, a, a biological function that might be described mathematically. But I couldn't, I hated trying to dissolve, trying to solve it mathematically. It was so painful. But I understood the concepts quite well, well, at least well enough to, to, to understand you know, what the implication might be for, say, pharmacology or toxicology. And, and it worked well enough. So that was good enough. And I, I would often lead in that way, you know, trying to inspire people to come up with new ideas or, or to challenge their own ideas to see if they were robust enough to become uh, a new drug project. And so um, that's what I'm starting to do now. So I, I don't, I don't really have good answers to your question. But I'm, uh, I'm, learning in, in humility that you know the tools i've got you know that my view of the world is sufficient to convince me that we are being lied to and and i now understand i do think i understand the motives of people that designed designed this and i'm not criticizing the people who've fallen for it because it's easy easy to do so yeah i don't have a good answer to the question but i think i think matthias uh, the objective he described which is to to speak out sincerely you know, and say what say what has come into your into your head in this in that situation. You know, being a little careful not to you don't want to step out in front of a truck, as it were, career-wise. But you know, ask questions sincerely or make observations sincerely. Um, my my wish for people is that there's a little bit more talkative. You know, we often will be inhibited standing in a line or in a crowd, um, and that's understandable most of the time doesn't really matter very much but I, it does matter now I, I think if you start an exchange a polite friendly exchange with people in the street uh, I think you'd be surprised at how often it's extremely rewarding that, that, that's all I would say I, I generally have found when I ask people and I, I'm always I always ask do you mind if I ask you this question because if mm -hmm. they if they don't want to speak to me they also want, you know they'd be quite abrupt and I put my hand up and walk away so I would say, yeah, start, start, um, be very polite, uh, very respectful if you're intruding in someone's space or even ask them a question that you've no business to demand an answer mm. from them, but you ask sincerely and politely. If they really don't want to speak to you, then you get the point. And if they answer the question, you know, that's interesting. You know, <laughs> where do you think that might be? Something like that. So I have, I have not got, uh, I, I don't have any answers. I'm making it up as I go along, but. 
And I want to second what, what, what Mike just said, that we should not try to convince people that they have to go back to the old normal. Because just like Mike, I don't want to go back to the old normal as well. The old normal, the old normal that was exactly the reason with all the psychological misery and all the, the lack of meaning making was the reason why people felt vulnerable uh, for this mass formation. So it makes no sense to try to convince them to go back to the old normal. And personally speaking, I also don't want to go back. I often said that here around me, like I, I remember vividly uh, that in December 2019, there were so many people at our at our uh, faculty at university who uh, suffered from burnout, who uh, were not motivated anymore. Uh, and I also remember that sometimes it, it, I, I felt helpless because of the the amounts of work and all the bureaucratic uh, stuff and and so on. And I think that in a paradoxical way, we needed this crisis. But the risk is that in this mm. crisis people become convinced that there is only one option to create a new normal and that it is this technocratic transhumanist new normal. And that's not true. There mm -hmm. are other options to create a new normal. And that's what we have to do. Much more than trying to convince people to go back to the old normal is that we have to try to construct together a new normal that is a human new normal in which we, people can live a life that's, that is worthy of a human being. That's what we have to do. Um, uh, and and that's, that's one aspect of maybe even more than criticizing the corona measures and, uh, and, and, and what is imposed now to society. Maybe even more than that, speaking out means uh, telling mm. each other that we don't want a new normal to be this technocratic new normal and that you have to think together about a, 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 a much better new normal. Uh, one of the things that motivates me is uh, you know, my young adult children, uh, 26 and 30 years old, and two grandsons, nearly three and nearly one. Uh, if they were not in my world, I'm not actually sure I'd be doing this. You know, in a sense, why should I? I I'm, I'm doing this because I'm, I'm outraged at their loss of opportunity to even have a life. You know, it's becoming more constrained for them. So uh, yeah, I, you know, Almost whatever you say, if it's to do with trying to help children, it's like I'm in for that. You know, that's that's why I'm in this at all. I don't really care about me. I mean, it doesn't make a great deal of difference one way or another. We're all going to die eventually, and maybe I can potter along for another few years or a couple of decades. But honestly, it's I'm not self-sacrificing. It's genuinely true. It doesn't matter mm. that much. I, I could probably you know go to ground and have quite a nice time and escape the measures, but it's the wrong thing to do because. Uh, my, my children's future and by representation their peers and by representation large numbers of people and, and I'm aware that I have an opportunity I have knowledge and whatever it is courage independence that means I, I can be hopefully a force for diverting us from this headlong you know, fall into you know whatever well you did you, know, you did choose Florida you could have you could have done better than that if you Moving to the US. I'd be very happy to go and uh, spend a little time with some people on a, a, an island off Greece. That sounds great. But uh, uh, seriously, I mean, one of one of the one of the things you'll be you'll be aware of is that the the imposition of testing and certification uh, as you move across thresholds, I'm afraid is I, I'm I don't want to 
start this because everybody knows what I'm going to say, but it's, I do think that's a feature of the system. It's like right. a grid in the future. And if you uh, increase the resolution of the grid until eventually it's like a meter, meter on a side, that's probably the ideal technocrat's world. You have to wave your vaccine passport or digital ID to move from one square to another. Uh, yeah, so it makes the free movement of, of people harder and harder. And that, that I think, is by design. Mike, in front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do mm. you see? I, I think that depending on where one is in the world, 2022 is going to see things get a lot worse or a lot better. I, 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 think, I think the era of uniformity, I, I like to think, is over. It must, it must be over. And that's because, um, you know, although there's been a great deal of homogenization over the world, increasingly over, over decades, we, we're, not, we're not the same. We form and, and interact with each other differently. So I think, you know, there might be some parts of the world that, that will go rather predictably to a sort of a vax pass world. Uh, but I think there'll be other parts that will resist. And we're seeing some signs of that. I, I won't name particular countries because I'll just get it wrong. That's the reason. But I, I, so I'm hoping diversity is the answer. And I've always liked diversity. I, I, I lived a long time in the corporate system. And the, one, the thing I hated most about the corporate system was the desire from the top to, to sort of, you know, as new management at board level would come in, they always wanted to make, make their new broom sweeps clean. They wanted things done in a particular way. And I kept telling them, you know, I don't know what the right way of doing drug discovery is, and I'm sorry, you don't either. And what I can tell you is uh, success is a function of the number of innovation units, at least, because it gives you the opportunity to run lots of different experiments and then capitalize on that. So I'm hoping that's exactly what's going to happen over the next year. There'll be, as it were, a number of innovation units. So there's the imposition of, of whatever the totalitarian system through the mass and then hopefully a degree of a differing degree of, re of resistance, or, or possibly people may cooperate in a way that diverts it from, from its goal. But I hope at the end of the year, instead of like a near uniformity of a gray threat, there may be strong differences and those themselves I think will be useful to, to help people navigate. I hope that's it. And uh, Matthias, in front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Well, I remember you asked me that question during at the end of our first interview as well. I, I don't remember what I what I answered, but <laughs> um, but um, but I, and also it makes me think about this this uh, this quote of uh, Niels Bohr, who said, uh, uh, pre "Prediction is always difficult, in particular if it's about the future." And <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> um, so, uh, well, what I see, you know. Uh, what, what I expect, what I expect, and what I what I what I expect is that more people will wake up, more people more people will speak out. Uh, uh, that's something that I expect. But I also expect that uh, the the people who identify with uh, with uh, the contemporary approach and broader the people who identify with uh, with the, the the mechanistic ideology, who believe that the technocratic solution is the only solution for the problems we are facing, uh, uh, real problems or uh, problems that are to a certain extent um, uh, imaginary in nature. So um, I believe that those people, uh, are those, this system, this ideology 
uh, will 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 become more repressive. Yes, that's what I believe. Um, I believe it will also. It might become more aggressive. But it's not necessarily like that. But it might become, and that in that case, we also have to be prepared to, to continue to speak out. And uh, no matter what comes, no matter what comes, uh, we have to uh, continue to think as uh, with an, as open-minded as possible, and to try to give voice to our thoughts uh, in an as sincere and uh, way as possible. Uh, so um, I don't know exactly what the future will bring, but uh, I uh, know what principles I will follow in the future. And uh, that's maybe uh, sufficient. <laughs> um, Matthias, if, uh, if people wanted to follow your ideas, where can they, where can they find you? Yeah. I have a profile on LinkedIn and I have a profile on Facebook. Um, I don't have a profile on Twitter at the moment. Good. Um, because uh, it <laughs> consumes much of my time, all this, these social media. And I want to write a second book. I wrote one book this, which, which will be published in uh, this year and in, in a few months. And um, I want to write a second one, a second book. Uh, which is about, on the one hand, truth, on the other hand, rhetorics, indoctrination and propaganda. So um, uh, people will have to miss me a little bit uh, on the social media, but I hope to, uh, to uh, be able to present them a second book uh, uh, in one year. But um, that book is not going to be in English, is it? Well, the first one now, which uh, the title is the Psychology of Totalitarianism, uh, is uh, will first uh, the first Dutch version will be published, but uh, it will be translated soon. And uh, I, the publisher told me today that uh, it probably will be published somewhere in the spring uh, this year. Well, I will definitely be buying a copy, and then I'll invite you back to chat about that. Um, and Mike, if people wanted to follow your ideas. Where can they where can they find you? Yeah, I'm I'm slightly more organised than I have been hitherto. Although I'm actually quite a disorganised person, really. <laughs> um, I used to be on Twitter, and then I kind of bailed out. I got, you know, whatever. Um, Me too. And then I had an I had an Observer account for a while, and then the Observer became a little bit too cheeky. You know, that is, it started telling the truth. And recently, they locked me out, even though I've got no almost no followers. I thought you're completely petty. Anyway, so I, I decided I was going to be petty back. And just on principle, I was not willing to delete a truthful account. So I left Twitter uh, as myself. And as a, I don't even look at it now. I've just decided I'm not going to go there. I do have a Getter account. -E yes. Yes. What's your, what's, your, what's your account there? My handle is, my handle is Dr. Mike Eden. That's what I am. On, on Telegram, um, my, my dear friend Robin Minotti, uh, rescued me really when I fell out of the Twitter window and and we've kind of collaborated ever since so there's a joint channel called Robin Minotti plus Dr. Mike Eden and that's those are the only two places I actually stick material out on and then the rest of interviews and I've, I've no idea what you do with it afterwards I that's the sort of one of my great um, regrets is I so maybe Jeremy you could send me a link <laughs> so I'll try and store them La last year I did like 20 or 30 interviews and uh, I, I don't have any kind of I don't have an organized record of them, which is so embarrassing, but I don't. Both of you on inspiration. Um, as always, it's 
it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank, thank you for providing the uh, yeah. Thank you for providing the 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 outlet. Really, it's very important. It really, in fact, it's very very important. All the people who do these things. Thank you so much for for creating the, that the window, you know, and the uh, the ear as it was. So people can hear us. Thank you, and Matthias. It's been a real pleasure uh, uh, being alongside you. Thank you. Likewise, guys. Thank you for listening and thank you for inviting me, Joe. It's, uh, it was uh, very nice to be here again. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.